0: Father, you are such a faithful God, a faithful Father. Why do we find it so hard to lean upon your promises? Why is it so difficult to claim those promises and to walk in those promises when the troubles come, when the storm clouds come, when we trip and fall, when we need forgiveness, when we need grace, when we need a new start? Why is it so hard for us to think that we can be forgiven? Why is it so hard to think that you would even give us a new start? Because your mercies are new every morning, and your compassions never fail, is what the scripture says. And we come to you, Lord, personally, individually, and as a body, thanking you that it also says about you things like this. You renew our strength like the eagles you are the one who gives us joy not as the world gives but your joy and you give us your peace that's not based on our circumstances but it's based on the fact that you are ever constant, ever true a merciful, loving, living, forgiving and a gracious God we thank you Lord for things that it says in the Bible about you that you restore the years that the locusts have eaten what a picturesque thing that is you bring beauty out of the ashes of our life. And so, Lord, we come to you saying, forgive us for the times when we doubt you. Forgive us when we don't go to you and turn to you as the first resource instead of a last resort. and Forgive us, Father, for the times when, even though we may say we believe the promise, but our faith wavers and we, we teeter. Help us to walk strong and firm in the promises of God. And Lord, we pray for our people and we ask you to heal those who are sick, preserve the health of those who are well. We pray for you to give comfort to those who are grieving. We pray that you would give hope to those who find their hope draining and fading. And we pray that you would build them up. We certainly pray for those who are here today or those who may be watching on live stream who have never been born again. Maybe they're a false convert. They think they have, but they really haven't. Maybe there's somebody who have never committed their life to Christ at all and don't really have a thought about it. Give them understanding today. Give them the conviction that they need and change their lives. And we pray, Father, that whatever lies ahead of us in this next week, as the all-knowing one, you already know what we're going to face Trials we haven't even thought of. Prepare us. Give us strength. Give us wisdom. And don't let us, as we uh, studied this morning in Sunday school, don't let the roadblocks deter us. Don't let the roadblocks discourage us. Don't let the roadblocks trip us up. But give us wisdom and humility that we would seek you and trust you that through your word you prepare us for everything we're going to face. Because your word is a lamp unto our feet And a light into our path. And in this dark world. We certainly need it. We pray for Israel. And pray that you would watch over them. And protect them. We pray for our own nation. For protection. And for your grace upon us. We pray for our leaders. That they would come to know Christ. As Savior and Lord. And that they would become wise. In the things of God. We pray for these upcoming elections next year. And we pray Lord. That you would have mercy on us. And give us a gracious person to lead us and people in Congress that are competent and they understand the times and are wise. We pray the same thing for governors. We pray the same thing for state legislatures. We pray that for mayors and city councils. We pray that for our school boards and our teachers and our faculties. Dear Lord, please help us and bring revival and renewal to this land and bless other churches that are gathering this morning, especially those who are gathering under the threat of persecution. And thank you for the freedom that we have even this morning to look into your word and to preach your word. Give us ears to hear, minds to comprehend, and hearts that are willing to obey and be submissive to you we bow before you in our hearts king of kings and lord of lords and it's in jesus name we pray amen if you would uh, turn in your bibles this morning we're still in the gospel of john but now we're in one of the most famous chapters in all of the word of god the third chapter of john and uh, those of you who know your bible know that we're going to come into an encounter with jesus and Nicodemus as Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and uh, notice here sometimes it's uh, implied or presented that Nicodemus he just had some questions and so he came by night but when we look at this first encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus there are no questions he uh, makes a statement and then Jesus makes another statement and then Nicodemus is completely ripped out of his frame completely befuddled By what Jesus says. And uh, we look at this. And all of my life I've been taught to look for divine appointments. Divine appointments. An appointment that God makes between you and somebody else. Well, I think we could agree this is one of the ultimate divine appointments. When Nicodemus the Pharisee meets the Lord Jesus Christ. So we start reading. And it says in chapter 3 of the book of John. There was a man, now we could stop right there. That's the whole story and that's the whole problem with the story. Nicodemus, for whatever else he may have been, whatever other people may have thought of him, however he may lived and whatever he thought about God or about himself, there's a problem. He is nothing but a man. And we need to remember that as we encounter people. They may be of a different race, a different religion, they may be of a different background, but they still are just Humans. They're lost, they need Christ as Savior and Lord, and the cross of Jesus Christ and the gospel can liberate anybody, anytime, anywhere. It's all by the grace of God. So there was a man, and that's really the problem, of the Pharisees. Well, that just compounds the problem. And his name was Nicodemus, and he was a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night. And said to him, Rabbi, term of respect, we know that you are a teacher come from God, another term of respect, for no one can do these signs, we talked about that last week, John loves to point out the signs that you do unless God is with him. So... Um, What would you expect Jesus to do or say in response to that? Oh, Nicodemus, you're so smart. Oh, Nicodemus, you're so wise. Oh, Nicodemus, you're just right on target with everything. Actually, Nicodemus was not the one on target. Jesus is because in verse 3, Jesus answered him and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to to him how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time (coughs) into his mother's womb and be born? Let's go ahead and do another verse. Jesus answered and said most assuredly I say to you unless one is born of water and the spirit he cannot cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus, when it tells us that he's a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, there's one thing Nicodemus was really honed in on, and that was the kingdom of God. That was extremely important to him. And so he comes to see this miracle worker from Galilee, and he comes by night, presumably, so nobody would see him. And he comes to Jesus, and he said, Look, we, he uses the plural, we, other Pharisees, we know... That you're sent from God because nobody could do these signs. He understood they were more than just tricks or miracles, illusions or shows of power or whatever. They were actual signs. Now this leads me to believe that the Pharisees, who were the very enemies of Christ... They knew a whole lot more than they wanted to admit to and they knew that Jesus fulfilled the role and the prophecy of being a Messiah, but they didn't want him and they didn't want him to be the king over them. You see, good news is only good news if you want it. And uh, to them, the coming of Christ was not good news, it was a threat to them and a threat to their power, a threat to their authority, a threat to their popularity and all of that and so they weren't real thrilled about the Lord. But Nicodemus clues us in on that. We know that you are for, from God or you couldn't do these signs. Now it's interesting too that the Lord Jesus just plows right into this thing and he mentions the kingdom as he talks about it. If you're not born again, you're never going to see the kingdom. And this messes with Nicodemus's mind. And we can learn from some of these things as we uh, think about divine appointments. How many times do you have a divine appointment every day of the week? An opportunity to share Jesus Christ with somebody else that God has set up, brought you into that person's life at just the right place, at just the right time. And how many times do we walk right past those things? The Bible says in the Revelation, in the uh, second chapter, I believe, to the church at Philadelphia, Jesus said, I have set before you an open door. How many times do we walk right past the open doors? How many times have you, uh, as I have, had an encounter with somebody and you talk with them? It was a friendly exchange. And then maybe as you drive off, you go, oh man, I meant to give them a tract. Or I meant to talk to them about their soul. Or I meant to say something about the Lord and we didn't take advantage of that opportunity that we have we have these open doors set before us and Jesus said to that church that the open doors are opened by me and no one can shut them and the shut doors are closed by me and no one can open them we just need to walk with the Lord and take advantage of the opportunities that he gives us and in this we uh, see some things that can help us to learn That person, uh, if you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, that co-worker, that family member, that friend, that neighbor who uh, always talks about Jesus and they always talk about the Bible, they always talk about uh, what they learned in church or something like that, Uh, they're not sent there just simply to bug you. That's a divine appointment. They're planting seeds in your life of the gospel or they're watering seeds that have already been planted and our prayer is that one day there will be a harvest that you will trust Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, trusting that he paid for your sins completely, totally, and in full and he did it out of his great love for us. And in this chapter, we will find a little later on One of the most famous verses in all of the word of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's all about Jesus. And Nicodemus is having an encounter with Christ. Now one day Nicodemus would become a follower of Jesus even though he was a member of the Sanhedrin. That's what it means when it says he was a ruler of the Jews the Jewish Supreme Court, and even though he was a Pharisee, we'll talk about that in just a moment, and yet he's going to come to know Christ, he's even there present when they take Jesus' body down from the cross, and he helps Joseph of Arimathea as they take Jesus and lay him into the tomb, Nicodemus, if I remember correctly, brings the spices that they're going to use for uh, his the Lord's burial. So something happens. But at this point. Nicodemus. Even though he is a well educated person. Even though he is a uh, follower. To the minutia of the law. That had been given. He didn't understand the most basic thing. He thought that righteousness. Is what you put on the outside. He thought righteousness. Was something that you wore. He thought righteousness. Is something that other people could see and they could praise you and affirm your righteousness. Look how detailed, look how they are following the law to the letter. He thought it was that. And Jesus is confronting him here saying that your righteousness has to be an internal thing. You've got to have your nature changed. You can't be just a man. You've got to be born again. And it's a spiritual change that has to take place. And that indeed is why Jesus came to earth so that we could have that inward change when we trust him as our Savior and Lord. And by the way, to trust him is not just adding him on to your life. It is when you surrender your life and die to self and then he takes up residence in you, controlling your life as your master, your Lord, and your king. And he's promised that people do that, will be saved. They will see the kingdom of God and live in the kingdom of God. Now, when we talk about these divine appointments, God set this whole thing up. This was not Nicodemus' decision, and it was something that God had arranged and God put in Nicodemus' heart. And he brings them together at the right time, at the right place, and in the right situation, just as he does us with other people we need to be ready for them well sometimes i think that i had a misconception about divine appointments i used to think that divine appointments meant easy that they were natural that they were organic we meet somebody at a soccer field and talk about our kids or we uh, meet another grandparent we talk about our grandkids or somebody who's interested in the same football team that we are and we talk about the game and those kind of things But I want you to think about this. Nicodemus and Jesus, could you get any two people that would be more like oil and water? The Pharisees were always critical of Jesus. The Pharisees were enemies of the Lord Jesus. The Pharisees would do everything they can to discredit Jesus, to mock Jesus, and to draw people away from him. And yet it's a Pharisee that meets with the Son of God and look what happens. So, point number one: Think about this. Divine appointments; uh, these are things that are set up by God, but they're not always organic or natural. It could be a Pharisee coming by night to meet with the righteous Son of God, and wow, what a what a meeting, and what a change, and what a uh, we would expect an explosion, we would expect an argument, we would expect heat and we would expect tempers to flare and those type of things but it says there was a man and he was of the pharisees and if you understand a little bit about the pharisees that this man was uh, uh, a ruler of the jews and a pharisee those are two separate things ruler of the jews sitting on the jewish supreme court the sanhedrin but the pharisee seems to be the the bigger thing now, when we uh, want to know who Pharisees are, we don't find them in the Old Testament. That's what's interesting to me. You don't find a, a Pharisee by that name in any of the books previous to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they are very, very prominent in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the book of Acts. In these stories that are told, the Pharisees are very prominent. Where did they come from? Who in the world are they? Well, here's some things for you to think about Uh, They were the ones who called themselves... The separate ones. We are separate. We are different. And with that was an aura of pride and superiority. And pointing fingers at others and looking down on other people. And again as we've made reference to so many times. Jesus tells the story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Whom the Jews hated because they were in collusion with Rome. And the Pharisee is standing in there and he goes. I thank you God that I'm not like other people. Especially like him. And that was kind of their attitude toward everything. And they tried to pull that kind of stuff on Jesus. And time after time after time after time, he made them actually look foolish with his answers. And uh, showed himself to be far superior to them. Now while they were separate. Let's make sure we understand. They were not isolationists. They didn't live in a monastery. They were not out in the desert like John the Baptist was. These are people who lived in the cities. And they lived in the villages and in the towns. And they were very active in their cities and in their towns. And everybody knew them. And uh, so they were... Uh, the kind that they didn't want to be involved with the Romans, this stuff about the kingdom of God, for example. I may be getting ahead of myself, so I may repeat later on, but trust me, I know I'm doing it. But they didn't even want uh, Gentile dust in their land. And so when Roman soldiers would march into the land, the Pharisees had the idea that the Messiah will never come as long as that Gentile dust from their feet the Gentile dust that comes from them marching through and conquering other lands, when that comes to the Holy Land, it defiles us and it defiles our land and Messiah will not come and bring his kingdom. No wonder they were astonished when in the midst of Roman occupation, John the Baptist at the Jordan River starts baptizing people and telling everybody that they needed to repent because the kingdom of God was was at hand that was unthinkable to them Messiah would never come to a place that was defiled because they lived their lives trying to stay away from anything and anyone that was defiled thinking that would make them holy imagine their astonishment later in the book when they would see Jesus actually touch an unclean leper and when that happened Jesus didn't become defiled the leper became clean What an amazing thing for them because they didn't live life like that. They lived it in fear, they lived it in legalism, and they lived it in superstition, scared to death that something was going to defile them, that something was going to get them, that something was going to mess them up. Now, the Pharisees were very conservative religiously. Now, the Sadducees, the other party of the Jews... They were more liberal. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible and nothing else. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't even believe in resurrection. So the Sadducees were the ones that would take government positions. They would be tax collectors. They would work with the Gentile authorities. But oh, not the Pharisees, because Gentiles will contaminate you. Gentiles will mess you up. And if you don't obey every aspect of the law to its minutia, then you're gonna, the, the enemy will get you and you'll be in bad trouble. And so they took a huge Burden upon themselves of becoming righteous, being righteous, and maintaining their righteousness. And by the way, if you were a Christian and you think that's the way you're supposed to live, you're dead wrong. You're only sanctified by Christ, and that's through faith as you believe Him and as you walk with Him and apply His principles to your life. Now, these Pharisees, they're not priests. They're not in the priesthood. They're not Levites or anything like that. They're mainly middle class, if you could call it that. They didn't really have a middle class, so maybe lower upper class people. They were mainly businessmen, and uh, they were very concerned about being righteous. That was everything that uh, they thought about, but it was all external. That's why Jesus said about them, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You're painted on the outside, and you look pretty good, but inside, the smell and the rottenness and the dead men's bones are in there. It was all the decoration. It was all for show. And they would uh, walk around so piously. And the things that they would do. Oh, I could never do that. I could never eat that. I could never touch that. I could never be around that. I don't know how you could do that and call yourself a self-respecting Jew. That was everything that they lived. Josephus, the Roman historian, says that at the time of Christ there were about 6,000 who were members of the, uh, the, who would be called Pharisees. So Nicodemus was a prominent man among these type of people. This is what he was. How did you become a Pharisee? Basically by taking a pledge. They became Pharisees by taking a pledge in front of three witnesses. And what they did was they promised to keep every detail of scribal law. You say, what in the world is scribal law? Well, the scribes, you read about them and you almost always see the scribes and the Pharisees are kind of together on that because the scribes were the keepers of the word of God. They would preserve it. They would watch over it. And then they would also copy it. And they were very detailed in their copying. And we can be thankful for that. And that's why we can go over to Israel. And we can find ancient manuscripts from a long time even before Christ. One of them in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They found an ancient copy of the book of Isaiah. And when they opened it up and they began to examine it, it was virtually word for word what we have today. Because the scribes, very, very careful about copying the scripture. And whenever they got finished with a copy, they would count all of the words, find the middle word. Then they would go to the original, what they were copying from by hand. And they would count all of the words, had to be the same number of words. And the center word had to match perfectly in both of those or they destroyed the manuscript. And so very, very careful. And there were other things that they did that we can be very appreciative of because we read from a very, very old book, but a very accurate book from the uh, originals. And uh, then also the scribes were the ones who would write commentaries on the Word of God. So they would uh, look and they would study and they would discuss and they would debate. And then they would write in the Talmud and the Mishnah uh, rabbinical commentaries on the old testament and they would give uh, the extra knowledge they would give the extra insights kind of like going to a bill gothard seminar or something like that the things that you need to know the things that are not as clear to people like you the secrets to uh, keeping all of the law and so uh, they would take things and they would write um, like for example, the scribal law, they would, uh, read, you shall keep the Sabbath day holy and, uh, not do any work in it. Well, so they had to ask questions. Well, what does that mean? Well, how far could you travel? And they had a limit on how far people could travel and how they could travel. And then, um, there were things that would say, uh, how, um, How much could you carry? Uh, They said things like this, a swallow of milk, enough water for medicine, and uh, the food, well, the weight of a dried fig. Have you ever tried to measure something like that, the weight of a dried fig? You know, there have been times uh, after I had my heart surgery, they were uh, very clear that For the first few weeks, I couldn't even use my arms. I wasn't supposed to lift anything very heavy at all. Couldn't even use it to steady myself or get up out of a chair. And then after that, I had to be careful that um, it had to be about, you know, no more than the the weight of a full jug of milk. Okay? They put those things on. Uh, I've heard of a person who after back surgery, they were told all they could hold was a teacup, an empty teacup. That was all the weight they could get. Do you know how hard it is in everyday life? to follow restrictions like that. Well, what if you had to do that every Saturday? And you had to be ready every Saturday so that you could eat and uh, all of that type of stuff because you're going to need to do that on, on that Saturday. So you have to have everything ready the day before so that you're ready on the Sabbath not to violate all of those laws. Well, how bad did it get? You know, Jesus talked about the Pharisees piling on commands that nobody could keep. Well, that came from these scribal laws. Did you know that the scribes came up, are you ready for this? In their commentary, with 24 chapters defining what work could and couldn't be done on the Sabbath. How would you ever remember? Well, they would, and they were sure to point the fingers. Remember, they would condemn Jesus for just doing things like healing on the Sabbath. Because in their mind, that would be some type of work. In fact, I was uh, reading about some of this. And did you know that there were certain knots, K-N-O-T-S, that you could and could not tie or untie on the Sabbath? Or it would be counted as work and God would be displeased and there would be a curse upon your life i mean just ridiculous type stuff like that this is what they were burdened down with this was the world of nicodemus he had made a pledge in front of three witnesses that i will keep all of the scribal law not just the law of moses but the commentary on it and all of the things that they said they could do in fact it was said that um, uh, in um the things they did on the Sabbath, a woman could tie her bonnet and uh, she could also tie the uh, the string that was around her, uh, a girdle or belt that she would wear. And so getting water was a problem because you had to tie a knot on the bucket to lower it down and tying a knot was work. And so some of the Jews, this is how they would try to think, if they could use a woman's girdle to tied to the bucket to put it down in the well, then it wouldn't be considered work. In other words, what were they doing? Always looking for loopholes. Always looking for a way out. And what were the Pharisees doing? Always looking to catch them in those loopholes, looking for a reason to condemn other people and to build themselves up. We are the Hasidim. We are the holy ones. We are the separate ones. We're not like... You people, you people who are defiled and sinful. Well, that sets up a showdown between them and Jesus because Jesus is going along with what John the Baptist had preached earlier and uh, saying that it's got to be righteousness that comes from the inside, from the heart. You've got to be changed, and it's not by your rituals or your law-keeping that anything's going to be changed. Whether you tie a knot or not on the Sabbath, whether you take too much water or not enough water on the Sabbath, does not change your heart. It'll make you angry, resentful, but it won't change your heart, and it won't please God. This is the Pharisee as he is... Getting ready to meet with Christ. This is his life. This is everything that uh, he has lived for and everything that he has lived in. And this is the kind of thing that he thinks that as he approaches Jesus, again, it's an external thing. Uh, Rabbi. I mean, who would have called him that? That was a term of respect. Teacher. Teacher. And uh, for an educated, wealthy man like Nicodemus to call a Galilean commoner like Jesus, Rabbi, that's quite a stretch. Very, very, very flattering, in other words. And we know that you're a man sent from God. We know this. And uh, again, very flattering, trying to build him up and fluff him up. And Jesus just confronts him uh, right away with, uh, hey, you must be born again. And that just ripped Nicodemus out of his whole frame. He didn't understand that at all. There's got to be chapter uh, and verse in the Talmud or the Mishnah, some commentary on all of this in order for this to happen. But Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, basically, you've missed the whole thing. You're not even close. None of that stuff, none of the commandments of men. Remember Jesus said in another part, you teach the traditions of men, the Talmud and the Mishnah, the scribal law, as the commandments of God. And they were condemning other people and looking down on them. They had no concept of grace or mercy. And that's why Jesus also said about the Pharisees, you tithe on your spices, but you've ignored the way to your matters of the law like justice and mercy. And they didn't have an ounce of it them so when we have a divine appointment think about that number two think about this they may try to appear agreeable at first and so he comes to jesus by night and he says to him rabbi we know that you're a teacher come from god for no man can do these signs he used all the right vocabulary but something was wrong and something was missing i cannot tell you how many times that i have tried to witness to somebody, and when they find out that I'm a pastor, they start telling me about their grandpa who was a pastor, about their great-uncle who was a pastor. I was test-driving cars one time, and I didn't even want to tell anybody who I was or anything like that. But as I was driving with this salesman, uh, he was using some colorful language and things like that. And then he asked me, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, well, I don't want to lie. And I said, well, I'm a pastor of a Baptist church. And he goes, oh, 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 my dad was a pastor. And he starts going through all that. All of a sudden he got very religious and he started using some of the terms he had learned in Sunday school and church and from his dad. And trying to make a sale, trying to find common ground to make a sale. Now, Nicodemus, I know, is not trying to make a sale, but he does much the same thing. He comes to Jesus, and he comes with this thing of, hey, we're in agreement. You're from God. These are signs that you have done. That gets me in the club. That gets me in the same rank with you, right? And so, uh, how many times, well, I remember when I was at First Baptist Chelsea, we had a man, his name was AJ, and he was from Lebanon, and he was a Muslim. He wasn't a very good Muslim at that point. And uh, I got to know AJ, and he started coming to church, and we got along well. And every time I would finish preaching a sermon, he would come up to me, and he goes, that is very much like us, that is very much like the Quran." those kind of things pointing out all the similarities and just smiling uh, real big. He's a very nice guy. And uh, I remember there was one time our ladies were having a mission study on the Middle East and they were talking about Southern Baptist work in the Middle East. And I said to uh, one of the ladies, why don't you have A.J. Alam, since his wife goes to church here and and we baptized her and her son, um, why don't you have him cook a meal? And it might be a chance to get to know him and let him hear about Uh, southern baptist work in his land and so he did and it was wonderful but he was so puzzled why would your people spend money and take the time to go to my people and that was our opportunity say because we follow jesus jesus told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel and uh, he was very very impressed by that and so he kept coming and uh one of the things that was interesting though he was a very nominal muslim at the beginning But when we baptized his wife and his son, all of a sudden he wanted to come to our church to see what they were doing. And then he started going to the mosque religiously and getting very, very devout all of a sudden. He felt a a threat, in other words into what he was doing. But he would still come up and talk to me. He was very friendly. That is very much like in the Quran. That is very much like in the Quran. In fact, um, I even made a deal with him one time. I said, if you can get me a Quran in English and I can get you a New Testament in your language, would you read it? And he said, yes. And so uh, we did that. And uh, there's some interesting things in the Quran that are uh, very strange to us. And um, so he came up to me one time And he was saying the same thing. This is very much like what we do. Very much like what the Quran teaches and everything. And I said, you're right, AJ, except for one thing. And this is when I felt the liberty to say it. I said, AJ, is Jesus God? And he said, no! And walked out. That was the last time I ever talked to him. All of that time of that agreement was what? Well, superficial. It was trying to find common ground that wasn't really there. Because the main issue is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is the ultimate and only sacrifice for our sin. And at that, the commonality ended. Do you see that in here? Nicodemus is coming up to Jesus. They've obviously never met before. But Jesus knows something about Nicodemus that Nicodemus doesn't know about Jesus. Jesus can see, as we saw a few verses up, he can see into the heart. He knows what's into the heart of man, and so he got to the heart of the matter. And so what does he do? In spite of the flattery, in spite of everything that's coming up, Jesus stayed targeted on the real issue. Have you ever had a time where you're talking to somebody and you can talk about church and you have a church, they have a church or a church background and that's as far as it goes. That's not really witnessing. Sometimes we can talk about things that might be religious They might even be good things and proper things to talk about with another believer, but they're not going to get a lost person saved. And you'll notice here that after all of this that comes up, and Jesus talking, pardon me, Nicodemus saying all these things, seeking approval, finding common ground, and all of the we knows and that you're a teacher come from God and nobody can do this except that God is with him and those kind of things. The truth of the matter is humanity is the only thing they had in common and even that was different because Nicodemus was a sinful human and Jesus was a righteous human being and that's really as far as it all went. And so we get to the third part of this and we notice how Jesus, kind of like a We might say a bull in a china closet. Man, he didn't use any finesse. He didn't transition. He wasn't very smooth. Nicodemus says, We know that no one can do these things except they be from God. What was he expecting? Blessed art thou or something like that. You know what he got? Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus knew that everything Nicodemus did, even to the commentaries on the Old Testament law that was so minute and uh, so detailed on everything that the only reason Nicodemus would even attempt to keep those, most of the people didn't even try, but he was trying because he wanted desperately to see the kingdom of God. And that was basically Jesus telling him, you're mistaken, you're wrong, you are sinfully pursuing all of this for your own benefit, for your own glory, and you're missing the whole point Of everything that God has done and God is doing. Unless you are born again, you're not even going to see. The kingdom of God. Well, that would have been quite a shock to this person because Nicodemus was the kind of man that he expected people to say, if anybody makes it into the kingdom, you will, Nicodemus. Look at you and look at all the things you do. Look how careful you are. Look how detailed you are. Look how zealous you are. Look how you are so devoted to all of this. And Jesus said, if you're not born again, even you Are not going to make it. And it reminds me of those people in Matthew chapter 7. That stand before the Lord after their death. And they say Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And what does the Lord say to them in that situation? Depart from me. I never knew you. This is a one-way thing. You were doing it your way for your glory, and you were doing it in your strength and in your power, and it was all tainted and contaminated and spoiled by your sin. You never dealt with your sin because there's only one way to do that, and that is by the grace of God and through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ only, not in anything that you do, not in anything that I do. So you see the clash that has come up here, and you see how this is not a normal and natural thing as we amplify on all of this. So Jesus said, most assuredly, he's putting an amen on it, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot, notice that, cannot see the kingdom of God. There was no question about it here. And so the Pharisees, that would be very offensive to a person like Nicodemus, Because they're trying their best to be devout. They're trying their best to uh, gain entrance into the kingdom of God. But Jesus said, no, it's got to be something internally that takes place in you. And then, just like now, I would say to each one of you, you must be born again. There's no other way. There's no other option. And then the last thing, when we have these divine appointments, expect misunderstanding. Nicodemus said to him, What are you talking about? How in the world can you be born a second time when you're old? Do you enter again into your mother's womb? What are you talking about? This is foolish kind of talk. Well, he didn't understand. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 22, pardon me, but Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. And that's virtually everybody we run into. They may know about the Scripture, some Scripture, but they are mistaken in their interpretation of it, in their understanding of it, and they think it is telling them how to climb the ladder into heaven when it is not. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and verse 14, it says, But a natural man, that means a man who's not born again, does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned or appraised and that was Nicodemus he hears the words of Jesus but he can't accept it he can't believe it because they don't make any sense He can't receive it with his natural mind. This seems silly. Born again? What are you talking about? Crawling back into your mother's womb? Come on, Jesus. you got to do better than that. This is ridiculous. Well, Romans 3, 10, and 11 is clear as well. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. So it's not a matter of the facts. It's not a matter of simply educating them. Something has to happen internally. Matthew chapter 16, verse 17. Even when Peter said the right thing about Jesus, Jesus didn't give him credit for it. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So I guess we could say that anytime anybody comes to know Christ, in fact, how many of you would say today, honest before God, I have been born again by the grace of God? Would you say amen? You had a divine encounter. You encountered the Holy Spirit. You encountered Christ. He came to you, and you trusted in Him Because of His grace, you didn't discover Him. He sought you as the lost sheep. And uh, this is all the work of God. That's the ultimate divine encounter. Just like Nicodemus with Jesus. What about you and Jesus? It's really... Very much the same thing. And all of a sudden, all of those things that grandma said, that your mom and dad said, that your Sunday school teacher said, that your preacher said, that seemed like they were so stupid, so foolish, and uh, so out there, so outlandish, so impractical, all of a sudden you came to a, a point in your life where you go, that makes sense. I get it. I'm a sinner. And everything I try to do, even if it looks good, even if other people praise it, even if it's... By our society, termed as religious and wonderful, you came to realize that your sin contaminated every single part of it because there's none righteous, no, not one. So how do you get this righteousness? You might ask, like Nicodemus said, how do you enter your mother's womb a second time? What do you mean? Then you begin to find out that the Bible says that Jesus came to earth as God in human flesh, living a life without any sin at all. Not a thought, not a motivation, not a deed, never forgetting to do what he needed to do for all of those years so that he could die on the cross as the sinless Son of God, and the innocent one took the punishment for sin for everyone who would believe in him, the innocent for the guilty, and all of a sudden it began to make sense. What happens to my sin? God takes it from me and puts it on Christ. How do I get a righteous standing before God? God takes the perfect life of Christ and puts it on the account books. ...of my life so that I am welcomed into his family and welcomed into the kingdom. And it's not by works of righteousness that we have done. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. The works come because we have been saved, not in order to get saved. And all of a sudden that made sense. All of a sudden you realize there's a God in heaven who sent his son to die for you, to pay for your sins. And that's all the hope you have. That's the only hope you have. But it is the hope that you have because it is sufficient. God accepts the sacrifice of Christ uh, on your behalf. And you don't have to go to hell. And you can see the kingdom of God Because of what Christ has done, not because of what you have done. And this is where the rub hit for Nicodemus. Now eventually he understood that, but this was a divine encounter. And I'll just say to you, you can pursue intellectual excellence. You can pursue fun. You can pursue material possessions. You can pursue fame. You can pursue sexual expression in whatever form you want it to be. You can pursue religion. You can... Uh, pursue atheism you can pursue excellence in sports or academics and whatever but regardless this life is passing away and there's an old saying that says only one life will soon be passed boy is that ever true and only what's done for Christ it will last. And when you trust Him and surrender to Him as Lord and Savior, He will give you His righteousness, as we said before, and welcome you into heaven, and your life will have purpose, and it will count for something, because you're living it for the glory of God. I heard a saying that was attributed to Ernest Hemingway, but I haven't been able to authenticate that. But the saying still is worth considering. He said, life is a brief journey, From nothing to nothing. That's the way our world lives. That's what their science teaches them. That's what their philosophy teaches them. That's what their flesh, their own flesh, their own heart, their own intuition teaches them. From nothing to nothing. And that's just about it. But I'm here to say today, according to the scripture, according to Jesus, there is a better way. Will you trust him and surrender to him as your Savior and Lord today, because you must be born again. He didn't say you must go to church, you must be moral, but he did say you must be born again. And my prayer today is that if you haven't been, you will be today. Just ask him, just ask him for it. Trust him as your Savior and surrender to him as your Lord. For whoever believes or calls on the Lord, the Bible says, shall be saved. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise, not from me, not from the Baptist. It's a promise from God and from his word. So will you trust him? today talk to somebody who is around you and they can get you uh, to brother chad trench and he'll be happy to talk to you or find somebody who will talk to you about being born again or about church membership or baptism or whatever it is you may need but the gospel is first and foremost you must be born again or none of the rest of it even matters okay may we pray together Lord, as we conclude this, there are people here who may be good church members who are here every time the doors are open, may even hold titles, positions, offices in the church, but they've never been born again. I was one of those. And I thank you that you heard my cry, and I thank you that you saved me. And there may be people here today who are into drugs and alcohol and pornography and all kinds of perversion, and they wonder, do they have to clean up before they come to the Lord? What do you clean up before you take a shower? No. They need to come to you for cleansing and come to you to change their life, to change their nature because they need to be born again. And that's why Jesus died. That's why he was buried. And that's why he arose from the dead. I pray today they will call out to you. I pray that they will trust in you. And I pray that today would be the day of their new birth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.